Welcome to the Food Therapy Podcast, where we talk honestly and openly about mental health, diet culture, BS, and food freedom. We're your co-hosts. I'm Brittany Modell, owner of Brittany Modell Nutrition and Wellness. And I'm Lauren Sharp, owner of Empower Method Nutrition. We are food freedom registered dietitians who have struggled with mental health, poor body image, and disordered eating behaviors. We are on a mission to dismantle diet culture, normalize conversations around mental health, and empower you as you heal your relationship with food and your body. Let's get talking. Hello, and welcome back to Food Therapy. We are so excited to have our guest on today, Aaron Flores. Aaron is a registered dietitian, nutritionist based out of Los Angeles, California. With over 10 years of experience, Aaron has worked with eating disorders in a variety of settings. His private practice is currently in Calabasas, California, and he also works at the Center for Discovery as a senior coordinator for weight-inclusive care. He uses intuitive eating and health at every size in his work to help individuals learn how to make peace with food and their bodies. He's a certified body trust provider and also the co-host of the popular podcast, Dietitians Unplugged, as well as his new podcast, Men Unscripted. Welcome, Aaron. Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here and talk to you both. Yes. So first, let's get to kind of like the foundation and the basics. What are some of the key features of binge eating disorder? So I think when people hear about binge eating, I think the first thing they probably think about is like, oh my God, I do that all the time. I like leave the table and I have eaten too much. And, you know, that's not really what it is. Uh, Binge eating disorder as, you know, is a diagnosable eating disorder in the DSM-5. Um, and that's new, right? That's new as of 2013. And binge eating disorder, again, I want people to think about eating disorders in the sense of a mental health issue that is affecting many parts of their lives. So binge eating, I think to me, the hallmark for people to think about with binge eating disorder is that binges are not really controllable. They start and they can't really stop. And they happen on a regular occurrence, you know, maybe multiple times a week over long periods of time. And they're getting in the way of people living their life where people might isolate more. They might avoid certain scenarios. They might eat one way in, uh, in public and eat differently at home. Uh, and, and I think underlying all of that is a ton of shame and a ton of like secrecy around the behaviors. Yes. And that actually, it brings me to my next question. You, you say like some people might hear binge eating. They're like, oh, I do that all the time. How would you help someone to differentiate something like compulsive eating or eating past comfort often from binge eating? Yeah, th- that's like a, a nine hour answer in some ways. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because in- inherently, I think within just that sort of moment of saying, oh yeah, that's me. I think it shows the influence of diet culture and fat phobia and weight bias. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and I'm just going to give you an example of that is um, I need to stop telling people that I haven't met like strangers, like, you know, like that I meet somewhere like on a plane, if I were actually get on a plane again, or, uh, you know, things like that. They say, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I work with eating disorders. And they're like, oh yeah, I have one too. I am, I can't stop eating or, or they equate eating disorders with like fatness, right? 
And, and like, oh, so many people have eating disorders, right? They just can't stop eating. And I'm, and that's like, I'm like, I don't think that's what it really is. Right. I appreciate your input. Um, <laughs> so I think the problem, I think what, when like the differentiation is that a lot of folks in, in our society right now have really troubled relationships with food for sure. And I think there's a lot of really challenging messages around food and bodies that are really pervasive in almost every part of our lives from childhood to adulthood to aging on and on. And so I think it's understandable why there is this sort of preoccupation with overeating and trying to pathologize it in some way instead of trying to actually understand why. Because if we can pathologize it, right, I think that increases the it increases like how we see bodies and I, or how we see bodies in a negative way. Let me, let me add that. Uh, because if we pathologize binge eating or, or um, compulsive eating or overeating, we're pathologizing bodies that are larger and we're now critiquing those bodies as bad. So what, I mean, it, it's a hard answer in, in some ways. And the reason that's why I say it's like a nine hour answer is because <laughs> There's, it's a nuanced discussion. And I think what people don't want is a nuanced discussion around food and body. And so if I could try to boil it down simply um, is, again, thinking about the level of disassociation and ways in which binge eating as an eating disorder is negatively impacting life, right? So someone who's binge eating is like really disassociating from the experience, not really even present. And, and there's probably some, uh, either genetic, uh, trauma component. I mean, there's something that's gone on in, in our lives that has led to this need to cope with some really hard stuff using food, right? Mm -hmm. Like the disassociation is like, I can't be here right now. This is my tool to get away from something that's really hard. Mm -hmm. yes. And so, you know, it, 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 it's just like, it's more severe, right? It's more intense than what people, I think, assume it is. And I think the other problem with, with that is because people don't think it's so severe, people assume you can just stop. Right. Yeah. People assume that, oh, well, how you fix it is by, well, if you binge on Reese's Pieces, just don't buy Reese's Pieces. I don't know what the big problem is. Like, just don't have that food in the house. Right. And you're not understanding the severity, right? Because whether it's Reese's Pieces, oranges, uh, donuts, or carrots, someone's going to binge. They're going right. to binge because they need that dissociation moment. Yeah. Yes. So would you say that... Because a lot of times, you know, I'm kind of talking about the, whatever the true definition of binge eating is, right? Like a lot of the times it's, or, or is it coming from a place of, is it more overeating if they're coming from a place of not eating enough and they feel like they're binge eating or are they just overeating because mm -hmm. they're freaking hungry? Well, I think binge eating disorder is an eating disorder of restriction. Right. Yeah. I think people hear binge eating disorder and assume it's just a binge 
And, and I think it's an eating disorder of restriction. Yeah. I think it's an eating disorder that has roots in not being allowed to eat certain foods, not eating enough, not eating enough throughout the day, not eating enough throughout a lifetime, being like dieting all the time, uh, never really having permission to honor someone's hunger or fullness. And, you know, I think about my, my brain goes to like, how can I sort of explain what might lead to a binge. And I think there's two buckets. I think there's going to be an emotional piece and I think there's going to be a physiological piece. And that physiological piece is hunger. And what I tell folks is like, you know, listen, if we can work on my job is to help with the hunger piece, right? My job is to help fill that bucket a little bit so that you can work with a therapist to help tackle the emotional piece of what's driving this binge. But if both are empty and you're trying to not hold out on a binge, it, I don't, it's going to be really hard, yes. right? Like you're probably gonna be able to manage binges a little bit better when you're probably properly nourished yes. throughout the day. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And it's what's so interesting to me. And even before I got into more of this like weight inclusive space and becoming more familiar with eating disorders and disordered eating, there is such a misconception that binge eating is the opposite of anorexia. And you know, both are rooted in restriction. And yet that there are so many biases and stigma related to binge eating. Can you speak to how it can be really harmful with some of these stigmas and biases when it comes to binge eating disorder and how people label groups of people who they assume would have binge eating disorder? Yeah. Um, That's the really like sort of fucked up piece of yeah. eating disorder treatment and uh is that not, not just not not treatment the eating disorder community and that has blown out in that is impacted by diet culture and weight bias we can't assume an eating disorder based on body size and i think that when we say it's the opposite of anorexia what i hear is it's someone fat is going to have binge eating disorder someone thin is going to have anorexia. And let me just pause. I use the word fat a lot. I don't use it as a derogatory word. I don't use it as a pejorative or weaponized word. I use it as a descriptor. Mm-hmm. And I'm using it instead of O words that are used by the medical field, sort of as a as a reclamation way of saying like this word is become more than what it actually is. So as I say this word, I want people to know why I'm using it. Um, but I think the assumption when people say that to me, what's showing is weight bias and, and fat phobia and, you know, it, and, and that permeates right to where the individual with the eating disorder is like, well, I must have this because this is what my body looks like when that might not be the case. Eating disorders across all different, uh, diagnoses come in all different body sizes. And to assume someone with binge eating disorder is going to look a certain way does a lot of harm because that means that person might not get the treatment they need appropriately. And the same thing for the person with anorexia who doesn't fit the poster of what it should look like is people will say, well, you're, it's not really an issue, right? You must be lying because you don't look thin and then they don't get treatment and then they suffer longer and the eating disorder gets more entrenched and it's harder to find some healing down the road. So it's, it's that statement that it's opposite. 
I think goes to our brain and our society trying to make oversimplify really complex issues. Yeah, I think you said that so well. And speaking to that too, I mean, even as a nutrition student, I had to overcome a lot of biases when I was like in my eating disorder rotation and everything. And even in that rotation, I didn't learn about this kind of stuff, which is so mm-hmm. wild to me. How have you continued to educate yourself when I feel like there's not much in our, like, I guess, traditional education, at least in mine, and I'm pretty sure Brittany's too, like there, there wasn't any type of this weight inclusive care yeah. that, that I learned in school. Yeah. Well, I didn't even get eating disorder rotation. So, uh, you know, uh, I, that wasn't even an option. And where I was when I became a dietitian back in 2006, I didn't want the rotation, if, even if it would offer it. I never wanted to work with eating disorders as I was going through training. That's a whole different podcast episode. <laughs> um, you know, I think there, there are a few things that have helped me unlearn all of that stuff that I learned going through a very traditional education process. I think it's being exposed to alternative narratives. And I think, you know, I think for a lot of professionals out there, I think one thing that is really important is listening to our clients. Listen to people's experiences, honor their lived experience. Don't assume someone just because it doesn't look like what you think it looks like is lying to you or is not telling the truth or is withholding information. If we do things well and create spaces where people can be vulnerable and honest, let's, uh, let's listen to them and understand that their experiences are valid. And we need to think about how those experiences push up against the foundations with which we've been educated. The other thing is I think we can do a really good job of thinking about what materials, resources are we going to incorporate into our ongoing education that reflect a diversity of experiences. And, you know, I think the idea, listen, I'm, I'm older, like the idea of a textbook teaching me these things is gone. You know, I think we need to be able to look at who, who writes the information right? What are their experiences? How can I make sure that I'm getting resources from a variety of people, Uh, people of color, people of different body body sizes, people of different socioeconomic statuses Mm -hmm. and saying like, these are valid ways to learn and understand what is going on with these, with, with the eating disorders, right? And it sort of, I know this sounds maybe like maybe a little controversial, but like, I I really don't like the word evidence-based because it means sometimes I I worry that where are we getting the evidence from? Like who was involved in curating and looking at the research? Is that research diverse? Is that research just focused on a very small type of population? And when we say evidence-based, sometimes I think it closes the door to other ways in which we could probably treat and help people heal from their eating disorder. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, I don't know, maybe it's just a little bit of healthy skepticism yes. and thinking about, you know, 
I, I would say this, like what, what we're doing now in many ways doesn't work. So what, what could we do differently to help people heal from these things? Right. And also going along with evidence-based, like look where that has brought our field so far. And mm-hmm. if, if you bring up weight-inclusive care to, you know, some dietitians and doctors and physicians, they'll be like, well, the evidence shows us this. And if you look at who is, first of all, if you look at the research and they don't account for so many things such as weight stigma and other factors, but Mm. as you said, like the research is also not diverse, especially within the eating disorder community. So thank you for bringing that up because I never thought of it that way, especially as dietitians were taught, like always, you know, go by evidence-based information, but what is the evidence sharing who is the evidence of and who is actually creating that evidence. So that's a really fantastic point. And people can also cherry pick data all they want, you know? So it's like, what extent is the evidence being interpreted the right way? Oh, totally. I, I really recommend people listen to the maintenance phase podcast. It's amazing. They are uh, (laughs) really amazing at, at their research. And one episode that, I mean, one episode that really, like, I felt like that was me. Like I felt totally sad about who I used to be, right. As a dietitian was the episode where they talked about Brian Wansink oh. and how, you know, he really did cherry pick data and sort of looked at stuff and manipulated it in ways to build all these assumptions. Yes, And they were assumptions that I like, I was like, Oh, like I said that, like, I remember like, reading his book and reading and I, and I did that stuff and I was like, Oh shit, I feel so bad. Like I perpetuated so much of this just because I assumed that because he's at a prestigious university, yep. it's gotta be right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's the issue also with a lot of physicians that we see too. And it's so hard, especially when clients come in, they're like, well, this is what my doctor says. And we have to under- we have to remember at the end of the day, like all of us are trained in a very weight-centric mm-hmm. paradigm. Yeah. And it's until we can extract ourselves from that. And also somehow, I don't know when this can happen, but it's really systemic. And I'm so grateful that there are a new field of dietitians and, uh, you know, the younger dietitians seem to be very clued into weight inclusive care. And it makes me really happy to see that. But I just hope that, you know, somehow, some way, you know, physicians and other healthcare practitioners can see the harm that they're continuing to perpetuate by focusing on weight. Yeah. Um, really tough too, like kind of going back to the evidence-based who's funding the study, right? That's a big thing in yeah. our healthcare system too, with big pharma, you know, unfortunately it's not a lot of preventative care. Um, my mom even went to the doctor and she was, she called me just pissed off. She's like, I have high cholesterol. And why isn't the first referral to a dietitian? They didn't tell me to go to a dietitian once. Like, why is your first thing that like, oh, you know, we'll just, we'll just keep an eye on it. Like, why aren't they helping her prevent it with seeing a dietitian, ideally someone who's weight inclusive, but it's like, they're, they just, the healthcare system in that sense is just so fucked up. Well, and by the way, it's it's nice that your mom got that answer because most people would have heard lose weight. Exactly. And somehow like weight loss is the golden answer for every single thing, whether you have an ear infection or a GI issue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
going back to going back to binge eating. So, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, yes. So when working with folks with binge eating disorder, you know, what are some of the main things that you look to, to work on first? I know you mentioned mm-hmm. meal adequacy, like making mm-hmm. sure you're eating enough, but are there any other things that you're looking at in that like early stage? Yeah, I think, well, that, that's a, that's a big piece, right? And, and I, in my work, the way I do this, again, it, it's, uh, might not be the right way or the wrong way. It's the way I choose to do it, uh, and work with my clients is I, I, I don't give people meal plans. I don't think giving you, giving people a prescriptive piece of paper that says, here's how much to either measure or count or monitor or whatever. I, I just don't, I don't like to do that, mm-hmm. uh, for a lot of different reasons. Um, but I think thinking about, well, I'm going to, I'm going to side, go, go sideways a little bit. The, the thing that I have really learned is that as soon as I talk to someone about food, it, it's a very vulnerable, personal conversation. And if I'm not attentive to that, I don't want the person I'm working with to feel judged or ashamed of what or what they are not eating or how they are eating. So what I tell my clients first is that as we talk about food, I want you to know that like we're going to do it with a lot of intentionality and I don't want you to feel judged in this space. And so how we talk about it, I want you to know that I want your feedback or I want you to, to tell me when things feel really hard, mm-hmm. right? And we can talk about why it's hard. So, so that's something, that's a groundwork I, I want to lay. I don't automatically just say, okay, we got to work on X amount of, you know, structure or whatever. Right. Um, so, so with that being said, as I, as we have conversations that take some time, right? It's not like a first session, we're going to have all this stuff figured out is where are ways in which restriction is showing up either intentionally or unintentionally and how can we address it? So my curious mind is always going to be looking at restriction. The other thing, so whether that's a meal, right, or a food group or a specific type of food, I'm always trying to think about, okay, where is that denial of eating or eating something showing up? So does that mean we need to have a little bit more structure, like planned eating, right? Let's just think about eating three meals a day right now, right? Or let's just, whatever is in the meals is in the meals, but let's just start with three meals, right? Is it challenging some food rules to say like, hey, uh, it looks like this, these these times of days, you're not eating these kinds of foods or this type of thing, but you said you really love it about like last session. Should we be including that into your diet? Um, Should we think about what foods, like how's your thought process around meals? Do we need to think about having a, a like a, a really flexible menu that might help you choose meals instead of feeling really overwhelmed at the time of eating and then not eating later? Um, so it could be like really a whole host of things that could be both logistical and emotional to make sure there is some improved nourishment. And by nourishment, I'm not, not being like like a I'm not saying like eat more carrots or kale or right. vegetables. I'm saying like adequacy. adequacy, like actual like intake to nourish someone's body to help them feel fed. 
Yeah, I love all that. And especially when I always think it's so counterproductive to give someone a meal plan. I think it depends, but I, I'm aligned with you in the sense of I don't want to trigger anyone by providing a meal plan and keeping some flexibility and and really going off of what is the client need most and what would you know they feel safest with and and feel most comfortable with is always the top priority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you what do you often do with clients when they feel a binge coming on? And perhaps, you know, it happened last week or you know they're they're nervous that something is a, a binge will somehow come on or whatnot. But what how do you often navigate that with clients? Well, it's a lot of validation. So as a certified body trust provider, one of the things that I really loved learning about and this phrase that shows up often is there's wisdom in our coping. And sort of saying like, hey, we're we're starting to work together on this eating disorder you might have had for, I don't know how long, but probably some time. That eating disorder showed up in a way to help you cope with something that was really hard. It served a purpose. It's no longer serving a purpose, but it kept you safe and protected from something. So as we start to do this work, I can understand that need for coping still being needed. And a binge might feel like the way to handle that. And that's okay. Right. We're just like, we're getting to do this work. Like, and so the assumption that like, oh, I started working with Aaron, my binges are going to stop now, I think is a lot of diet mentality. And, and when it does happen, there's a lot of shame. So it's not like I want you to like keep binging all the time. I just want to say like, it's bound to happen. Right. And let's aim for like being in the gray area, not all this way or all that way. And just say, let's be in the middle and let's be in it a little bit and try to understand that, yeah, there are triggers that are going to show up that are going to have you think about engaging in a binge because it's the coping, you know, right. It's like, I'm going to go, I'm going to lean into the suffering I know not a new kind of suffering that feels really challenging to sit with those feelings. So I, I want to normalize it. I want to say like, yeah, there, you might binge, but what could I do in our discussion now to feel supportive to help you challenge it, right? Is it, it maybe the goal is just to delay it an hour, right? Can you sit with the feeling for an hour, five minutes, 10 minutes? I don't know, whatever the time is. Um, can you be curious about maybe why, right? Just be curious about what do I need right now? Like, what is my need right now that would help me feel more, more soothed? Um, that's, I don't know if that's a word, um, right now. And, you know, and asking the question, like, am I like, am I hungry? You know, maybe, maybe I haven't eaten enough all day or maybe, um, it would, you know, I, I don't know, or I'm craving something that I haven't given myself permission to have, to have in the past. So I think I, I invite folks to have a lot of curiosity into their behaviors and actions and to sit with a lot of feelings before like that disassociation comes 
and to really challenge the shame and judgment of like having these behaviors because eating disorders are not a choice. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. It's not, you can't will yourself out of your eating disorder. It's going to take some, some work. It's a mental health issue. Mm-hmm. And so the healing might take some time. So as much as we can confront shame with the behaviors, yeah, I think is an important healing piece. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, even clients who have had so much shame, hearing from a provider or hearing from anyone else say, it's okay. And not only is it okay, but you're, you're coping in the way that your body knows how to cope at this moment in time with the tools that you have. And hearing that validation can be so healing and so helpful for people to have a bit more compassion for themselves. Um, yeah. Because yes, eating disorders are not, are not a choice. And you mentioned the mental health component, right? So it is in the DSM as a mental health diagnosis. Mm-hmm. However, and there are, you know, medications in terms of mental health. What are your thoughts on, and I've had clients, friends be prescribed medication from a mental health perspective. And I've also had people mm-hmm. be recommended for certain medications to control binge eating by medical doctors. So mm-hmm. from a medication perspective, do you have any thoughts on mental health prescriptions versus like being prescribed like Vyvanse to stop eating, right? Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on all of that? Well, first off, what I tell my clients is, you know, I'm going to share my sort of ideas around this Mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean this is what you have to do you get to we're going to take the information that you and i are going to talk about and you're going to make the best choice for you and i'm going to support you with it and so so i I guess what i sort of say is like my opinion is my opinion Mm -hmm. it's not doesn't mean it's what you should do Mm -hmm. right like i I think i want to validate someone's choice in how they do this because there are some of my clients who are on Vyvanse, even though, yes, we know there's an impact on suppression of hunger and, um, and it's marketed as a weight loss tool mm-hmm. that it really does help their binges. It does help in those moments when they're feeling really like it's uncontrollable, like Vyvanse has helped them in some ways. So can I sit in the nuance that, yes, this is not what I want it to do. This is the, not a side effect I want as far as decreasing hunger, but we can still build attunement and we can still do the work, mm-hmm. but it's get providing the benefit, then absolutely. Like, you know, then you take it, right? And same thing with, you know, medications from a mental health aspect that might cause weight gain or might, you know, have other impacts on hunger and fullness that are hard for the client. If they're providing a benefit in that mental health space, then let's keep using it, right? You're, it's helping you in some ways. We will work with what is sort of the side effects or like the the the, the secondary impact of these things. Right. Let's work together to get through them. So, you know, I think the biggest zooming out, right? So that's why I tell my clients, zooming out, what I notice is things like Vyvanse and, um, and other medications like that are, they are very weight focused, right? And I think they are uh, sexy and appealing because of that aspect. So of course, people are gonna jump on 
the train to, to prescribe them. Mm-hmm. Um, their effectiveness, I think, is depends on the person a lot. And I think if we can, what I would hope if I had a, a, a magic wand to change everything, right, is that we took the weight impact of it out of like how we market it or how we even study it and say like, if we got rid of all that stuff and didn't even look at it, is it really the most effective thing at helping manage people's binges? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think that's where it sort of maybe varies a little bit. Where in your experience working with clients who have taken by bands, have you noticed any almost like rebound binging? Like I, so I have ADHD. I grew up taking all types of stimulants and no doctor ever told me that it was going to suppress my appetite and maybe cause me to binge later on. In fact, it was almost like welcomed that I would, it could help with weight loss. Um, but I'm curious, like in your experience, do you notice that yes, it helps to suppress the binges in the moment, but there's almost this like rebound effect later on in the evenings once the medication wears off? Yeah, I mean, it definitely like, ebbs and flows like that for sure. And I think, I think that, you know, that's a really, really challenging space for a lot of folks. Absolutely. Um, and to me, I also think that like, there's, there is like that learning opportunity in there to say like, Hey, this is like how your body is actually working really well. Like it hasn't been nourished really well throughout the day. And now it's like this, uh, suppressant has like sort of done its run its course and now all of a sudden hey your body's saying like no i'm hungry like let's marvel at sort of like how your body is showing up for you to try to give you to try to tell you to eat more um i also noticed that rebound when people come off the med like completely right and they've been using it a long time and they're like now not going to use it they're like oh i'm hungry all the time i'm like yeah because you probably haven't been getting enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's really just like being on a diet, right? Like I did this for six weeks and now I'm done and now I'm really hungry. Well, of yeah. course you're fucking hungry. You haven't been eating enough. So, you know, again, I think these are conversations that require a lot of nuance. They require a lot of like sort of, okay, how do we want to manage this then? Like what can we do to think about when you're suppressed from an appetite standpoint, continuing to eat throughout the day? Like, is it small meals? Is it putting it on a schedule? Is it saying like, even if I'm not hungry, I got to put something in that's easy, that it doesn't take a lot of time, but I know because it's going to help me at nine o'clock when that comes. And when nine o'clock hits, you have permission to eat, Yep. Mm -hmm. right? The permission is unconditional when it comes to eating. Like, and if you feel like you're hungry, then let's eat. I don't care what the clock says. Yeah, I appreciate that nuance. And it is really nuanced. I don't think there is any mm-hmm. right or wrong answer. And at the end of the day, it's up to the person whose body it is. And, and it's their lived experience. But I like the idea of getting curious and collecting information in a really non-judgmental way and just seeing like, is are the benefits outweighing the costs? Yeah. So switching gears just a, a little bit, um, I'm curious from your perspective, seeing binge eating in men. And, um, you know, I say this because I think oftentimes eating disorders are seen 
so much for women and especially like thin white women. When you think about an eating disorder, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what has your experience been like working with men? And, you know, do you find that they're able to identify the fact that, Hey, this is an eating disorder. And if so, like, what does that work look like? Yeah. So thinking about just sort of prevalence, right? We, we see very high occurrence of binging disorder in, in men and women. Um, it's, they're almost, they're almost equal numbers, right? Uh, and binge eating disorder is probably the most prevalent of the eating disorders that, that we know of. So there are a lot of people struggling with it and a lot of people who don't know that they don't have an eating disorder. The, my aha moment uh, with all of this was when I did work at the VA and back in 2013 and I, you know, binge eating disorder was added to the DSM and we started thinking about how many folks are we working with that have an eating disorder. Uh, and when we did presentations on it to like groups of vets, they would, they would like really self-identify. They'd be like, Oh, that's me. Like I, I am, I haven't eaten like, that's what I'm doing. And I've been doing it like, you know, the, when I worked at the VA, it was mostly, you know, folks who served in Korea, Vietnam, um, you know, folks in their fifties, sixties, and they were like, Oh no, that's me. And I've been dealing with this since boot camp. Right. And so it was sort of my moment of saying, like, I think if people understood what this really is, they would probably see that they have an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. So it goes back to what you're saying. Yes, people assume that an eating disorder is like the after school special on Channel Four, right? Of like, you know, a very or a very special like Blossom, right? And and Blossom's friend has an eating disorder. And the reality is that eating disorders occur across all genders, across all races, across all body types. They are really more prevalent than we assume because the screening tools suck and they skew towards the after, after school special, very special blossom episode. <laughs> so, so the reality is a lot of folks are struggling with an eating disorder. I will say most of the folks who come to work with me in my private practice have already learned they have an eating disorder. Like they've been referred to me, right? Like their therapist has been like, Hey, this is something uh, that, you know, you probably, that you might want to sort of work deeper with and, and sort of they're coming to terms with having an eating disorder. I think also I'm, I'm seeing a lot of men who are coming to me with, not just binge eating disorder, but all eating disorders, mm. you know, all different types. And, and so I don't want to put it just as a monolith, like for binge eating disorder. I think right. working with men with eating disorders is, you know, a lot of folks are like, I didn't realize this was a thing. Like this was, I was taught to do this in high school on my wrestling team, right? Or this is what, you know, the trainer told me to do. And, and this is, you know, how I thought it would help. Um, or this is how I used to cope with, you know, being bullied uh, as a kid. All these things. So I think there's, in knowing that there's, this is a thing that other folks are struggling with it, I think has helped at least my clients know that they're not alone. And I think knowing, finally knowing that, oh, other people 
are, are having similar experiences. I thought it was just me, I think is one of the big things I see. The other thing I see is a lot of, a lot of folks, uh, male identified folks are coming to me and they're like, I, it's not like I was dieting all the time, right? It's like, it's not like I was, I don't identify with being like in diet culture as we might traditionally think of it, but they were, it just didn't have that label, right? But they were like, but, and so that's another thing. And then I think thirdly is uh, we really need to focus on self-compassion and seeing self-compassion, not as a weakness, but as uh, a necessary, not a necessary, but as an important aspect of healing and that you're allowed to be kind and compassionate to yourself. And that this like, no pain, no gain, just work harder, yeah. um, you know, push through it mentality right. is not helping when it comes to your eating disorder. Yeah. This is actually a great segue to your new podcast, Men Unscripted. And I, I have recommended it to several of my male clients and I, it's missing in this space. So tell us about how you came about starting this podcast and what listeners can expect to hear. Yeah. Um, it is, I, I'd previously done a podcast a while ago with a co-host called Dietitians Unplugged. So I, I knew I liked podcasting. I, it's like, I... I like doing things like this. I like just talking to people. And I was mulling around the idea of doing a new show. And I'm like, what am I, what do I want to do? And I came up with this idea of, I want to interview real people. I don't want to like do a promotion podcast where people are come on and promoting their practice or their website or their mm -hmm. whatever. Um, I want to talk to real people and I want to talk to folks who identify as male mm -hmm. and I want to ask them about what it's like for them to live in their body. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, that's a, that would be cool. Mm -hmm. And I talked to a couple like colleagues and they're like, oh no, that would be, I would totally listen to that. And then I realized that if people listen and I hope they do that, I like personally, I do this for a living. I, I wouldn't mind going on a podcast, but like the average person I don't think would want to come on a show and talk about their experience and use their name. So I ask everyone to use an alias. Hmm. And so they're not, you know, they're anonymous discussions. If they, after the episode is open, they want to disclose it was them. That's fine, but I'm not going to. Hmm. And so they're anonymous conversations with folks who identify as male about with asking what it's like for them to live in their body. And they all self-selected. I just put something out on Instagram and I got 10 folks to agree to do it. And um, we just, so season one is 10 episodes. I promised myself I would just do 10 and then see what I feel like doing. Yeah. Um, but all 10 are out now and they're really amazing. Like I think to me, what, what speaks volumes is each person who participated once they heard their interview live were really thankful to do it and felt good about doing it. They said it was hard, totally uncomfortable, but they're, they're happy they did it and how it came out. So um, these are really honest conversations. Some of them are really vulnerable. Some of them are a little more humor related, but I think they are all very intense in some ways, conversations about how hard it is for dudes to be in their body. I think it's such a good idea. It's, yeah, it really is. And I'm, I'm glad it exists, especially as a 
place to go to because I think it can feel so isolating. As you said, for folks that identify as male, because it's not, I feel like with, with women, it, it becomes like table talk. Like, oh, I'm trying this diet. I feel this way. I feel this way in my clothing. Mm-hmm. And it's not really like that in the male culture. It's, it's more about, you know, growing muscles and getting to the gym. So having a space where people can go to and, and hear these conversations and be able to identify and feel supported. And I think it's so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate that a lot. Well, Aaron, thank you so much. I always learn so much from you. And, you know, if you're a dietitian listening to this episode, go check out, is it still up? I think it is. They're your binge eating course with Fiona. Yeah. Yeah. No, a, you can still uh, register for the course on EDRD Pro. Yeah. it's There's an incredible course about binge eating if you want to learn more. And if someone is looking to work with you or hear more about you, where can they find you? Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I did one of those things where you have to like sort of rebrand. Uh, <laughs> I never thought that I was a brand, but I guess I am. So I just launched a new website and it's, um, it's very, uh, I had a lot of time coming up with the URL, but it's AaronFloresRDN.com. Uh, and, you know, you can find me there. And um, I'm on Instagram and it's the same name, you know, Aaron Flores RDN. But that's where you can get links to the podcast, um, find out more about working with me. Um, I do supervision for dietitians who are interested in doing that as well. So you can yeah see all the cool stuff that I'm doing and the way I approach all this stuff, learn about all of that at my website. Amazing. And all those links will be in the show notes as well. So people can check it out. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Food Therapy. If you enjoyed what you heard and want to support our podcast, please subscribe, hit download and share it with your community. We value your feedback. If you feel inspired, please leave a review. Let us know what you've learned and what you would like to hear next. All information about this episode will be linked in our show notes. New episodes of Food Therapy come out every Sunday, but you can stay connected with Food Therapy all week long by following us on Instagram at Food Therapy Pod. As a disclaimer, this podcast should not replace therapy or working with a registered dietitian. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.